This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Happy New Year, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. We have a special episode for you today. It's cold here in Chicago, and since I don't have any trips planned to warmer climates anytime soon, Hawaii chapter, invite me anytime. I'm thinking about our annual conference happening this summer in San Antonio. So much is happening behind the scenes right now, and if you've enjoyed our conference before, I promise you're going to love it this year. We'll have focused education in key topic areas like revenue cycle, changing payment models, analytics, consumerism, innovation and disruption, and so much more. Registration will be open soon, but in the meantime, for today's episode, I wanted to share a few interviews I got at the 2019 annual conference in Orlando. First up is a conversation I had with Kyle Hickok, president of Revent Solutions. Change management is one of my favorite topics because it's both crucial and difficult to do well. Hickok has led his organization through some big changes the last few years, so he shared some of his learnings with me. There's a couple words that come to mind. One is it's a journey or a theme there is that you don't change on day one. You don't become an integrated company on day one. And the second kind of key word would be communication in that we have been successful in bringing together our, our revenue integrity capabilities into a platform, into a suite of services by setting the stage with our, our team members to say, we're coming together to create a better platform. We're cre- coming together to provide more value to our client partners. We're coming together to take the data that we get from our, our client partners today and do more with it, get more value for our partners out of it. And we've used that as kind of our tagline and mantra to change the organization. What did it look like in your organization? You talked about bringing together eight different companies um, and each doing something kind of different. And you started out doing one thing and now do a whole lot more. What does it look like when you're dealing with staff with training of you might not have done this thing before, or you might not have done what you do with this particular goal before? Is there training involved? Is it communication? Is it working with your partners from a different legacy company? How does that work? First and foremost is creating alignment in that as we brought together the organization is sharing that overall corporate vision of what we wanted to be and and setting that aspirational goal. And then going into each of the capabilities of the legacy companies and looking at what worked best for them. What was their secret sauce? Sometimes it was a person that was just really good at their job and and had people bought in and, and knew that niche very well. Sometimes it was a technology capability. Other times it was client engagement and their their commitment to client satisfaction. So we went across and took an inventory of each of those organizations' capabilities and said, 
you know, you do this really well. How do we bring this across to the rest of the organization? You do this really well. How do we bring it across to the rest of the organization? So I think first and foremost, when you're doing that transformation, that integration, and there's multiple levels of integration, there's, you know, kind of level one where we have our marketing together, we have our org structure together, we have those types of things. But then there's level two. Do we actually operate as one company or are we still operating in legacy silos? And we're just coming out of the, the end of that level two integration where we've spent you know, a lot of this the, the year focused on the people component of our organization. Any advice for healthcare organizations going through this kind of change? Would, it, would you say that it's worked out pretty well for you the way you've, you've kind of brought all these companies together? It's been a, a tremendous success to date, right? You know, we're still, we're going to be adding um, capabilities to our organization as we go. So our journey is not done. But advice would be, you can't do it as a side job. You need to have some folks dedicated to leading the journey, communicating the journey. I think that's a critical component, knowing what the plan is, setting your aspirational goals up front. If you don't have that defined plan of where you want to get to and how to get there, people are going to flounder. They're going to kind of take their own personal interests and drive towards those or, and or this is the way we've always done it. Why would I change it? If you set those aspirational goals, it gives them a reason and rationale to make that that change as you go on that journey. I think that's one. Um, two, I think, is executive buy-in and leadership. Executives in the organizations just can't do the weekly check-in or the monthly check-in on how are we progressing on integration. You've got to roll up your sleeves and be involved in the process. And that's how true change management and, and transitions occur is with engagement and, and true involvement with the, the teams and the businesses um, as you move forward. And if you know someone's just watching from the side, you don't get the true engagement of your team members. Um, you need visibility. You know, a couple of things that we've done, um, we do pretty frequent town halls. Um, we do a monthly newsletter that has a lot of updates of what's going on with our business and what's going on. And then we've also built a construct where every time you know, members of the leadership team are, are out in one of our locations or offices where we're trying to pull team members in, how are things going, you know, what's the status of it, here's what's going on with our company, um, and making sure that they're supported and, and getting the information that they can talk about our business and feel good about our business as we go forward. Do more than keep up. Connect with over 3,800 healthcare finance thought leaders who will help you stay ahead. Join us for the HFMA annual conference. You'll be inspired by a fresh look at why it's more important than ever for your organization to be purposeful and value-driven. This year's HFMA annual will be hosted in San Antonio from June 28th through July 1st. Learn more at annual.hfma.org. The next interview we have is Michael Mercurio. He's the executive director of the Partners Professional Billing Office, and he spoke in a conference session about using AI and machine learning to reduce administrative burden, and specifically how he accomplished that goal at Massachusetts General Hospital. For the last 15 years, the Massachusetts General Physicians Organization has been building and investing in a tool that started out as a workflow tool to help our coders 
be more efficient in their coding processes as it related to anesthesia. It also relieves some burden from our docs in the revenue cycle process. And on that foundation, we built uh, an electronic charge capture tool for our docs that was basically a web-based charge capture tool. And we started to use statistics and algorithms to identify uh, when a particular event was scheduled uh, in the OR, what the CPT codes and diagnosis codes were that were going to be most likely associated with that event. So instead of having a doctor have to scroll through long lists or flip a piece of paper back and forth, we actually were pointing them to the CPT codes and diagnosis codes that they would very highly use with, uh, with a high degree of accuracy. And so within four or five clicks, they'd be able to send us a charge. And from there, we realized that we had access to a tremendous amount of data. And we started to dabble in the AI, machine learning, neural networks, gradient boosting world. And we have been able to develop a product that has eliminated most of the surgeons at MGH from having to do any charge capture, as well as uh, taken out a lot of our coders from the process. And we've moved in the radiology and pathology space to a drill percentage that's extremely high, and we've uh, become more efficient and reduced our costs. What are some of the opportunities for healthcare organizations looking to accomplish that goal? Well, there's a lot of uh, vendors out there, and a number of institutions have developed some of their own homegrown products. I've been fortunate to be part of the a process at uh, MGH and within partners that has, has done that. Uh, and with the the tremendous availability of data processing through the cloud and the relatively uh, cheap cost that it, it, it is in order to process large data sets, uh, it's going to become relatively ubiquitous in, in the very near future. There are a lot of players in this space currently, and probably within the next five to seven years, it's going to radically change not only how physicians and patients interact with healthcare, but also uh, those of us in the revenue cycle will be uh, relatively uh, impacted in, in a large way. So just before we started recording, you were talking about the sort of people management piece of this. But there are a lot of opportunities when you're talking about AI. So how do you balance that? If you're a healthcare organization, you want to balance those opportunities, but you also want to be mindful of the people who work for you. We've had to tackle that a little bit in in our organization. And part of the way we've been able to solve the problem is through growing and providing people with new roles and new opportunities. Uh, in other ways, it's been being transparent with people and saying that their your job you're currently in may not be here in nine months or a year. And if that's if you're able to live in the world of gray, then we'd like to have you stay for as long as possible. And if you're not able to manage that because everyone has a mortgage and family and rent and expenses that you need, if you need something a little bit more stable, then we'll help you try to find something else to do. And as we've grown, we've also been able to provide additional training for for people. The transformation that we talked about earlier might come rather quickly. And sometimes when these transformations have happened in other industries, they've not necessarily been as fast as what is occurring now. So the economy or the industry or the organizations had time to change. I, I think that it's going to be very rapid change in, uh, in, again, in the next three to five years, uh, at the outset, maybe seven, where a lot of the workflows and a lot of work is, is drastically different or completely eliminated. So for our listeners uh, who might be one of those employees who, you know, or those staff members who are working in, in the revenue cycle department or wherever, um, and they see change happening, what would be your advice to them to move forward in their career if they don't want to just abandon it and go somewhere else? 
That's a really good question. If they have the skill set and the interest and the horsepower, it'd be a great idea to try to get involved in more in the AI in the AI space as a developer, a machine learning expert, to be able to contribute in, in those ways or to find other roles in the organization that uh, may not be necessarily as affected by AI. But roles that are calling up payers to see if uh, where the claim status is or roles that are uh, abstracting data from charts or roles that are moving data from one part of an application over to another uh, or doing relatively straightforward things are going to be very much um, taken over by machines and those roles won't, won't really exist that I, I don't think in the very near future. Is your organization a high performer in revenue cycle? Earn the recognition you deserve with a MAP award from HFMA. My name's Christy Pahanage. I'm the Associate Vice President of Revenue Management Operations at Geisinger. We pride ourselves on the MAP award, having received it 12 times. Geisinger takes a lot of pride in our results. Our team is very dedicated to the metrics, looking at what's getting measured and making sure that we're able to deliver results for the organization. Find out more about HFMA's MAP Award by visiting hfma.org slash MAP Award. Our last interview for this episode comes from Trenor Williams, the CEO of Socially Determined, a company that created an analytics platform around the social determinants of health. He came into our studio to talk about how healthcare organizations can address the social determinants of health. We think about how things like food insecurity, housing instability, lack of transportation, social isolation impact people's health and their healthcare and their clinical outcomes the cost associated with that, where they go and don't go for care. Uh, and we work with health systems and health plans and life science companies to do that. How does a healthcare organization or how should a healthcare organization decide which determinants are most appropriate to directly address themselves as opposed to creating a partnership around? Yeah, and it's probably an and, not an or. Um, I think as organizations, one of the transitions that we've seen over the the last few years, this is migration from this is what our foundation should do, or this is an altruistic effort to be able to address some of the social risk areas like housing and, and food. We've seen a really nice um, evolution um, at a health system level uh, around concerted efforts to focus where they have financial risk. So when organizations are thinking about managed Medicaid, uh, especially depending on some of the states, some states like North Carolina, Michigan, Massachusetts require efforts around social determinants um, for their Medicaid population. As organizations think about Medicare Advantage um, and both the how do you close clinical care gaps and STARS ratings, um, social risk matters in those spaces. Um, where and when health organizations self-insure their own employees. Um, and most of them haven't thought uh, about the risk that their employees might have, like those that might be who are really fragile from an economic standpoint, who live in areas that are food deserts, right, or lack transportation to be able to get there. And I, I say this as, you know, in healthcare, we're pretty egocentric um, and we can um, not appreciate, I think, a lot of the challenges that our co-workers go through or the folks that are in environmental services, people are medic medical assistants, et cetera. And so, Part of the sort of where the health systems start is I think it, it matters in what 
sort of how they think where they have financial risk. The second piece is if you are going to, if we were going to do anything, we would want to be able to survey broadly and understand risk for an entire population. So then you could actually dive in and figure out what are the needs that people have and who needs the most and sort of where do I, uh, where are those efforts? So we would contend that it makes sense to look broadly across entire populations of patients that they care for and understand the demand side of the equation first. So do we have significant areas of food insecurity? How does that match up with our diabetics and our heart failure patients and things like that? Do we have big areas of transportation risk? And so we have access issues. And so rather than people coming into primary care, then they're calling the ambulance and going to the emergency room. So it starts with a greater understanding and then I think the, this is a long answer, but as you think about what do you do yourself and when do you have partnerships, a lot of that becomes sort of tied to capabilities and bandwidth. You shouldn't arguably as a health system do everything. It's not your place. You don't have the resources to be able to do it. And frankly, most of the time you don't have the expertise. And so if you start with the demand side of the equation, you understand what's going on. You do a relatively uh, thoughtful but simple evaluation of what your own capabilities are and narrow that down, um, again, sort of matching supply and demand with what you can do, you're going to be then left with some gaps. And you may say, we can do a lot of things around transportation with our, our own program, but we can't do food. And so then it might be I go out and look at food banks or food delivery, like with mom's meals or something like that. It sounds like some of these issues, healthcare organizations can work out some good partnerships with community organizations with, like you talked about food banks and yeah. things like that. How do you foster those relationships to, to make sure that the, the link is meaningful? When you spend time, uh, real time in the communities, one, you recognize that um, so many of those community-based organizations don't have a natural link with either the health systems or health plans that are also in those communities. So there's there's a challenge there. There are also issues with capacity, bandwidth, and capabilities. And so you need to be able to understand what those are. I think um, so. One of the rising companies in this space is an organization called Unite Us. They're not the only one, but they actually go into communities and develop the network. So they work directly with the CBOs. They build in and, and they actually give them technology from our, that helps manage a referral and care management process. They sell uh, essentially access to that network to the health systems and health plans. I, I would argue that most of the systems that I've had the chance over the last 20 years to work with don't have a lot of those capabilities to do that legwork that it takes on the ground and understanding and spending time with their communities. And when there are solutions like a, a Unite Us, it creates a really nice partnership. And so I think one of the things that we are seeing is that ability to work with somebody like that if you're a system that can map out a community network and create a referral process. And then what you realize is that's a subsegment of the population. Like, how do I think about everybody? And for the people that need that referral, this becomes a path to do that. For everybody else, what else should I be thinking about? And how am I negotiating with my health plan around benefits and services, as an example? And what does that look like? How do I integrate this with again, Medicare Advantage and how I'm thinking about closing care gaps? And so there's a precise way to focus on the, on the folks who need, maybe they have the highest need. And then there's a broader solution, I think, to look at everybody. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer, and you'll hear from him next week in a special new kind of episode. 
Don't forget to register for the annual conference in San Antonio. It's happening June 28th through July 1st, and you can get the particulars at annual.hfma.org. And be sure to reach out to us with your questions and comments at podcast at hfma.org.